and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host, Wayne Wise. How's it going, Wayne? I'm good. How are you, Mav? I'm doing all right. I'm still on summer vacation. I was on summer vacation last week. I probably won't be by the time we record next week because, <laughs> in fact, I, in fact, technically, I think by the time people are listening, I might not be on summer vacation or I am on summer vacation, but I agreed to teach summer school. So, so I'm what, kind what of you, on summer what, vacation, but what not. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? I was thinking I need a new car. Okay. Um, all right. That's fair. <laughs> You know, down payments cost money. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, right, okay. <laughs> it's just it's just like everything else. Like when they were when last semester, as you'll recall, I was teaching an extra class, and everybody was like, and I was exhausted all the time. Why are you doing this? And I was like, because I had to run new electrical in the basement, and like <laughs> that's like that's how I make my decisions. I've got things that I need to pay for, so Capital, I work extra. That's right. That's what I'm doing. So, how about you? How you doing? I'm all right. Nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's just been work and you know normal stuff. Well, I so I will say that you could have, if you were thinking, you should have asked Chat GPT to write banter for you before the show. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you're right. You're <laughs> right. I should. I, what was I thinking? It. No. <laughs> How do you know I'm not? That's true. I don't know that. So, all right, weird topic today. This is a tie-in episode, I guess, and I should explain where this came from. So if you've read the call for comments on our blog, I talked about how I got this idea by listening to the YouTube show Wisecrack. And we had the host of Wisecrack on a couple weeks ago, Michael. He's not here today. We've got other people from the channel today. But on a recent episode of their show, they made a comment at the very end to the effect of, and this is why AI can't do academic criticism. And AI can't be a critic because AI doesn't have taste, etc. And I was like, I don't know that not being able to have taste means you can't be a critic was my theory. I just think it means you can't be a good one. But I also well, don't tell that to lots of the critics who are out. <laughs> well, I'm not 100 percent sure that being good at criticism and I'm good TM and we'll explain what I mean by that in a little bit. But I don't know that being good at what I call being a critic is what people are usually paying for when they're buying. And I'm using the word buying very loosely when they're engaging with movie criticism or book criticism or music criticism in the modern sense. So Michael was busy and he was just on the show. So instead, I invited two people from Wisecrack to join us. I want to introduce Henry and Lux, who are a producer and director from Wisecrack, if I got that right. Is that correct, guys? Yeah, that's one of, one of, one of honestly, the extraordinarily large number of me and Henry Calaba. <laughs> I'm, I mean, that means, I guess, by system, by deduction, you can infer that I'm Lux. But yeah, that's, I'm, I direct all the Wisecrack videos and write some of them. Mm-hmm. And I'll let Henry explain what Henry does. Hi, I'm Henry, and I edit some videos for Wisecrack. I edit for a few other YouTube channels as well as produce all kinds of other videos video projects yeah so were you guys involved with that video where i'm like which is by the way it's a fine video but i'm just like ah, i take qualms with this one incredibly tiny thing that burn says at the very end and i'm like i'm gonna make a whole episode of my show on that <laughs> I, I do all of the videos okay, so, so, yeah, so yes yeah. you were <laughs> so yeah like one little tiny 
frankly negligible point to the overall argument but the so my understanding of and you guys would know better the point being made there was ai as we currently know it the things that we call ai chat gpt doesn't really think it's just mushing together a bunch of language it's making language connections to mush together something that sounds like the thoughts of the internet as a whole and therefore it's by definition not really original thought and therefore not criticism but my real argument is i don't think most of the criticism online that people want is original thought i think most of the time people who are going to I don't want to say all sites because I think that Vox Pop is different. I think that Wisecrack is different, which is why I listen to these, you know, why I host one and I listen to the other one. But I think a lot of times when people are going to these sites, they're just looking for, hey, tell me the thing that I want to hear about this movie. Tell me why my favorite band is the best band and every other band sucks. Tell me why this TV show sucks because it's too woke or tell me why this TV show is awesome because it's woke enough or whatever. Like they're looking for validation, not necessarily for criticism. Genuine criticism. My that's my feeling. That's why I took issue with it. But okay. I will. So I'll, I'm gonna like <laughs> sort of go through that, but in reverse order. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think you're not wrong, right? That there is a massive market for what is effectively sort of reproducing a specific slice of cultural discourse that people are like, "Ooh, that's my slice. This is my whole. It was made for me." Type stuff. And to a certain extent, even Wisecrack, especially in like the earlier days, was kind of doing that. Right. The whole point initially was to sort of provide a way for people to be like I like this movie and here's a really intelligent way of explaining or like intelligent air quotes because you know sometimes we would really goof off but like intelligent air quotes sort of way to be like this is why I like this thing right like that was an early part of the Wisecrack ethos there were definitely videos we did where we were like well we hate this movie but annoying people will like it and we can tell them why they like it at least and so that's, that's definitely true but I think the argument that Alioto in the video that we were kind of making is a little bit distinct from this because it, it positions criticism Daisy Alioto, by the way, is the critic that you were quoting or Burns was quoting in the video. So it's not even Burns's point. It's it's many layers here. But yes, if anything, you should be talking to, I guess, Amanda. But, you know, she has to go out of town tomorrow. So you got us. But uh, it's making the argument, I think, that criticism serves a function beyond just sort of consumption, which is like analysis of the cultural framework from which like uh, an aesthetic or artistic product emerges. Right. Mm -hmm. And AI probably could even eventually do that. But I think the thing that Elliot is getting at, and this is where I was like, not so fast, Mav. I don't, you know, I don't know. <laughs> is that so? One thing that Henry and I do together is we make videos, we make short films. We've, you know, there's some of our shits on Amazon, some of our shits going to festivals this year, some of our yeah. stuff in other places. We make wrestling shows, make all kinds of stuff. And so a part of that is constructing visual audio aesthetic choices in such a way as to provoke a reaction, right? Yes. And a part of criticism is both explaining how that is done and why that works. Mm -hmm. And that's the part where it's like, that's what taste is, right? Is the articulation of those specific things and the ability to produce and recognize those specific things. And that's the thing that AI, I don't think, really can do. Certainly not yet. I don't think it can do it yet. Maybe one day, but yeah, I do. I do agree with you that it's really bad at that. Yeah. And that's sort of, I think the sort of point of the Alioto claim, right? Is that like at a certain point, because I think Alioto is sort of taking your argument into account when she makes the claim, right? She's sort of saying that there's this market for sort of sort of this is my whole was made for me style criticism. It exists. AI can do that. But what AI cannot do is replicate criticism that's contingent on taste and sort of analysis and reaction to taste. Mm hmm. And I think that's like, that's not only true, but also extremely important for my mental health. 
<laughs> like there has to be something in that space, you know? And luckily yeah. I think, I also think it's accurate, that assessment. So it's not just me being like, I'm making this thing up so I feel better about myself. Sure. You know, we all do. <laughs> but it's also like, that's, there's a real tangible thing there that AI cannot capture. And because of that, it can't do criticism in a way that is like moving and meaningful and effective with an A. And like, I think that is a core truth. And what the video itself was getting at is that there are sort of skills and abilities and styles that you cultivate mm-hmm. that enable that ability. And that's important. <laughs> Yeah, I think AI is suitable for being a snob, but doesn't have the discerning ability <laughs> to be a critic. Going off of, you know, the wisecrack video what, is how we, we define say what the video was snobbery. called. Yeah, yeah, we should say what the video was called, why you made that joke. Because like the video is in defense of snobbery or, yeah. <laughs> so, basically, we had a couple titles, think, because of SEO stuff. Yeah, <laughs> SEO changes it around, but it's basically in defense of snobbery. And going off of how we define it in the video, you know, an AI can aggregate what taste of the current moment are and see what's in style or what's currently high status and direct you towards that kind of stuff. But getting back to the Aliota quote about it being, you know, something that needs to be human and free of that, it gets back to this idea Walter Benjamin has called the angel of history to kind of go analog with the idea where in making historical narrative, especially like in the post-industrial era, we start talking about narrative and we start becoming overabundant with like what history is or what we think history is and we get kind of trapped in our own sense of narrative and kind of obfuscate what is affecting material reality or what we can do to escape those narratives we feel trapped in. It's the same way AI is not going to be able to tell us about a change in taste or a shift in the cultural reevaluation. I think, for instance, of something like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which which back in the day when it was first seen and kind of laughed at, if you had kind of a aggregate sort of learning machine at the time, kind of just generally cataloging the value of movies based on how their initial reception is doing, would have been thrown in whatever the metaphorical trash bin of the machine would be at that time. And that would it's, have been right. We've seen is right. We've done it. We've done an entire preview. episode on that. Yes. <laughs> no, I, but yes, I agree with you because Rocky Horror, the value of Rocky Horror in, and we, again, go back to that episode and listen, I'm not a fan, but I explained why and I explained that I actually do appreciate it for what it is. And what I will say is that the value of Rocky Horror, what made it work is that Rocky Horror does not exist in the in the average genesis of what is a good movie that would have been produced yeah. in 1973 or nor does it exist in the genesis of what is a good movie TM in 2023. The value right. of it is speaking to an ethereal understanding of timeless queerness through that. Yeah, there's a sense too of looking at it and looking at this thing from the 70s after going through the 80s and, you know, Mm -hmm. things like the AIDS epidemic and the shifts in queer culture and just the way that gives the piece a different lens to be looked at under. On the flip side of the Rocky Horror example, I'm noticing a lot of kids online are starting to have nostalgia for Michael Bay's Transformers and posting about it. Mm -hmm. And if they're the ones in charge of the robots, that's what the robots are going to like. And shouts out. Hopefully our friend or me and Henry's mutual friend Wilson Smith one day gets his Michael Bay book published (laughs) because he has some good stuff. Yeah. But yeah, like it's it is true that like AI is very good at aggregating like what people are talking about, but it's not good at aggregating the subtext of that talking. And that's like a lot of what criticism is unearthing that subtext. Like this is again, not to like refer back to like ye old days of wisecrack, but I'm going to 
Like <laughs> that's sort of what we used to do a lot. And we still do a little bit was like, take a thing and be like, this movie is obviously about X, but is the way in which it's about X or think it's about X really talking about Y. And those are some of my favorite videos. The emoji movie one is like an all time favorite of mine. Alec Offerman wrote that a really excellent piece. I thought, or my personal best one I ever wrote the Evangelion one. Like those are sort of unearthing this sort of meta, this meta or the subtextual element that is that AI just like can't really get to as of yet. Like it's important to comment all this like as of yet. Like I have I'm dubious about the future of AI, frankly, but I'm not silly enough to think that anything is like impossible when it comes to computer. Because like I remember eight bit video games. You know what I mean? I, uh, <laughs> I kind of I kind of hinge like a lot of my worldview hinges on hoping it gets better because some of my transhumanist thoughts are that like we need the robots mm. to be smarter because if stuff like climate change keeps going on, that might be the only way to get the humanities to kind of go forward through time. And this is a place where Henry and I, well, not diverge entirely, but my position on that is if the robots are going to be good at fixing climate change, we'll have had to become caring about climate change first, which may just fix it on its own. But yeah, it and, and other, you know, because, you know, if we get super AI, but it's like super post, you know, post-industrial, late capitalist AI, then like, oh, seems yeah, bad. you just don't want to teach it to be misanthropic. Yeah. <laughs> The yeah, well, that will just happen. Have you, like, if you, I mean, that's the problem with AI. AI is, I mean, you've, uh, we've done this before where we've, a couple of people have said AI is loose on the internet and it's like, oh, just put it on Twitter and see what happens. And it becomes a Nazi like within hours because. Oh my God. It was horrifying and scary and sad, but also so funny. Right. Because that's, it, because the, it, I mean, you're essentially training. It's the problem with training a data set based on an aggregate that is not not necessarily all of humanity. It's just the set of humanity that posts to Twitter, which is a very specific and now even more specific, you know, Elon curated group. Yeah, it's the <laughs> subset who is privileged to post. Right, right. And I think that that is a flaw that happens in assumptions of data set training. It's why it's the exact same reason that AIs are bad at recognizing faces of people who are not white. It's because the people writing it are white and therefore that's most yes. of the training data and therefore all black people look alike to the ai all asians look alike to the ai all latino people look alike to the ai i mean it's literally a problem right now with the apps that we have built for doing border security and immigration they cannot scan the faces of the mexican people trying to cross the border because it looks at them and says i don't know there's no person there because the person doesn't look white enough it's a flaw <laughs> Yeah. There's a great book on that. The algorithms of oppression is like a really good book that, that yeah. explores in a really detailed way. And then also my former debate coach, Edmund Zagarin, who we all love him in his tiny glasses, wrote a piece that I think about really often when it comes to AI, where the core argument was basically that a big part of AI fear as it's shown in movies and, and in discussions is because there is a sort of awareness of who the kinds of people making AI are and what they think about the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, this goes back to this criticism thing where it's like, again, like, yes, there's, you could theoretically create the data set that does this stuff pretty well, but the world in which we live is not one that produces that. And some of the stuff that makes criticism or art particularly compelling comes from things that you can't really fit into a data set, like comes from things like colliding with other people, and interacting with them it is uh, as i said in the wisecard discord at one point much to the chagrin of some of the people in there 
sometimes it is good for someone to say, shut up, you're wrong. <laughs> and like, that's a good thing because then you have to reckon with why you're wrong, how it feels to be wrong, what, how much you care if you're wrong. Mm-hmm. These are like questions. And then those questions inform your worldview and your approach to things. And that informed worldview then creates the stuff that you put out. And AI can't really have that experience in the same way because there's no emotional correlate to go with the sort of intellectual or like raw data correlate. And that's sort of part of why this question taste is one that like seems kind of unattainable to me for AI short of radical new inventions in, you know, how this stuff works, which again, like I said, always possible, but just like, I don't know what it looks like. Yeah. It gets to me, it gets down to the difference between a bot you're playing chess against and a bot you're playing something like street fighter against where just the nature and limited range of chess allows for a robot to be able to kind of calculate out math the player street fighter. There's still such a faster amount of like human input going on on and so much of the meta of that is mind games that mm-hmm. i mean you can body a high level bot in that game and still just be absolutely nowhere as far as like competitive play goes against a person just because so much of it is psychological rather than just like knowing the inputs like chess can be psychological i guess it's not i'm <laughs> talking more specifically against a against like a robot or an sure. ai opponent yeah you, yeah you watched this year's world chess championship which i did you would know it is a very psychological logical game yeah. things so, got like emotionally distressing so, <laughs> okay, so, so here's my here's the question i'm wondering right and i'm gonna probably loop wayne in here a little bit because the question i'm wondering is does a critic have to have taste and i'm saying that very vaguely what i'm thinking of is there's this argument that was really big actually it comes back it cyclically comes back but it was very big in the early 2000s music scene the britney spears era music scene and in sync where against bubblegum pop of this isn't real music this is a thing that all that lots of music critics were saying mm-hmm. anybody could do this anybody could do this it's just the machine it's all, all auto tuned it's all yes that argument and my argument back then was okay first off no it's not true and you know I, i've talked about this on the show before like I was very aware of the difference between Britney Spears and Billy Piper who premiered their first albums on the fr- on the same day. And I was like, this girl, Britney, is going to be the biggest star in the world. And Billy's going to need to find another career for herself. I said that to my wife on like an early date of ours when we went to we went shopping and she's like, why do you care about these 16 year old girls? And it's like I'm doing cultural studies. Leave me alone. Um, but, but anyway, like I was saying that as a cultural theorist, as a critic, that was my feeling. But that was an ephemeral. I've got complicated reasons, which I can like sort of break yeah. down as to why I think that Billy didn't have the je ne sais quoi that Britney had. And they're <laughs> not identical. But it, most of people weren't looking for that. People were mostly looking for, is this album any good? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Much like like they were looking for the criticism that people were trying to buy as a commodity is exactly what those articles were complaining about the bubblegum pop. They were saying, oh, you're just looking for this generic, overly produced thing. And I think that that's what Rolling Stone was selling at the time was they were selling 
this the, the Rolling Stone was selling this narrative of no, we're real music critics, and that's why we don't like any of this. Now, fast forward five years, they were just like they were all over Britney taking whatever she would tell <laughs> once she became a big enough star. But at the time, they were trying to say no, we are sophisticated, and that's why we listen to grunge, right? And I think that's and that now. goes back. I mean, in music criticism, that goes back. I mean, mm-hmm. pick an era. You drum machines were bad, and it was going to replace drummers, and, and no one would ever make good mu- music with drum machines. And like, don't tell that to Daft Punk. Yeah. And, or, or the Moog synthesizer. TR808. Yeah. Yeah. The Moog synthesizer, you know, in the 70s was going mm-hmm. to destroy music. Sets were going to destroy the music industry, you know, home tape. So well, maybe it, we'll just let black people record. You know, I don't know. Same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Same thing. <laughs> but yes. So I guess what I'm saying is, I do think that AI can do a certain kind of thing. And the question of the snobbery video, right, is what's the purpose of snobs? But I'm wondering, does a critic have to have taste? Just something I know that Lux is invested in just because we've been having a conversation on that Discord channel earlier today. Would you argue that Jordan Peterson is a cultural critic? I would argue that he is. I would argue that he's a crappy one that I do not agree with. But I think that he is providing a product that is criticism that is being bought by a large subset of the populace who wants to buy his product. And therefore, I would argue that he's a critic. I'd also argue he's full of shit, but I would argue that he's a critic. And I would argue that the value that he is providing probably could be provided essentially by a chat bot that had been trained on just things that he's because he hasn't had anything new to, the, to this argument in you know mm-hmm. the last decade. So, so he's yeah. just saying the same thing over and over again. So I think I can replace him with a chat bot. And since a chat bot can be Jordan Peterson, I think that there is value in that. But I think counts as criticism. Okay, so again, can Jordan Peterson be replaced by a chatbot? Yes, obviously. Like, <laughs> if Chris Onstad can like make Ray Smuckles a chatbot, you can make Jordan Peterson a chatbot because Ray is a more complicated character than Jordan Peterson. But like, so like that's that I agree with. I don't is Jordan Peterson cultural critics an interesting question because my flipping immediate response is to be like nobody plays one on TV. Um, <laughs> that's not bad. <laughs> like he occupies the space of a cultural critic because he says things about culture but he doesn't really make derivations from culture to make claims that mean anything okay right? he an- analyzes culture because he it is in sorry to keep referring to the discord but in that discord this thing happens somewhat often because it is full of sort of younger people who are smart and academically inclined but maybe aren't used to having to actually make arguments where people ha- get come to a conclusion and then sort of post facto sort of say things that lead to that conclusion right um and which that's is, sort of, which is peterson's jam that's like yeah. his whole thing yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm saying is that I think to I, well, I think basically what this is getting at is that there's maybe a distinction to be drawn between like little C and big C critic. Okay. That there is like a little C critic that can sort of reproduce a specific type of discourse that can jam things into a thesis to make the thesis seem like it's full of things, even if the things are mostly hot air. Like you can you that can exist. Then there is big C criticism, which I think is taking stuff that exists in the world and deriving new ideas or connecting those things to un- unanticipated things um, and drawing those connections out in a way that like elucidates the modern condition or the lived condition of people. And I don't think Peterson does that. And I don't think AI can do that. And I think that in order to do that, you do have to have some degree of taste. I agree. And I think that's the key difference. Now I do think, and this may be an interesting question we can get into that things like Rotten Tomatoes and CinemaSins have made 
made it so society as a whole have conflated big C and little C criticism. Yes. Yeah. I'd say, and I'd say, God love them. Siskel and Ebert did that. Yes. Well, and, but I, and I'm a big fan of Gene Siskel and a big fan of Roger Ebert, but I was the nerdy kid because I'm, you know, I'm a nerd. I'm a culture nerd. There's a reason that I grew up to become me. Right. So yeah. I was the nerdy kid who in high school didn't just listen, look at thumbs up, thumbs down. I read the whole damn article. I want to know what Gene Siskel has to say about this film. I want to know what Roger Ebert has to say about this film. And let me go and find what Malton is saying. Like that was me because I was a weird little film nerd. Whereas most people are looking for what people want is the thumbs up, thumbs down of criticism. And the reason Rotten Tomatoes is popular is because Rotten Tomatoes gives me a binary yes or no on something. Mm. Even though what the score means and Rotten Tomatoes has been very clear about this, the way people are using the score is not the way they mean it, because which is why it's not even set at 50%. It's set at 60%, which means that if something has a 59%, it's better than half the people still like it, but it's still rotten and people don't care because they just want to see good tomato or bad tomato and that's it, right? So I think that, yes, I think that absolutely the algorithm of Rotten Tomatoes, which no one would call an AI, but for the purposes of this conversation, works a whole lot like one, <laughs> is essentially hurting big C criticism. Yeah, and I mean, even, like, I think Cisco Niebuhr is a really great example here because... They create that problem the opposite way, right? Like they were too good at it. Yes. They mm-hmm. were able to do big C criticism in a way that was so compelling and accessible that it made this whole genre of how do I justify my take on this movie? Because, like, you know, if you read Pauline Kales and end her essays by being like, and that's why you got to go see Wild in the Streets at the nearest <laughs> cinema. Like, that's not how that works. Well, is, that is where Siskel Lieber landed because they wanted to make something that talked to all these people. And that was good. And I think is a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. I, I want to make this clear. I don't think little C criticism is by default bad. Like, I mean, this is a habituation of mine, but like I read the write-ups of every Orioles, every Baltimore Orioles baseball game every morning, unless they lose. Unless they lose. I love that. If so they you're lose, you're like, looking for confirmation bias is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. If they lose, I'm like, I don't want to hear about this. Do not care. <laughs> if they win, I'm like, tell me how Adley Rutschman did. I'm so excited to hear. <laughs> about the best morning in the world. And I th- and that's like a natural human thing. And I think it's good to have a thing in society that provides that for people. I think, and I don't think anyone's, I don't think, obviously I would love a more critical and sort of engaged society, but I don't think people are individually obligated to be that way about every single thing in their lives. It would be exhausting. Good to have these other versions of that. I was just going to go off of what you're saying about you wish, you know, wishing that individuals had a bit more of like that big C critical like facility. That's kind of what the little C criticism is good for when it's a healthy apparatus. It distributes theoretically like the best art to people to get them kind of looking at things. I do think you can historically look at, say, like the new age of Hollywood in the 70s and the way like distribution kind of helped get something like the last detail in front of way more eyes than it would like nowadays. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like it distributes those ideas and also like provoke, you know, like I'm a bad example of this, right? Because some of my backstory is my father took me to see Pulp Fiction when I was four because he couldn't get a babysitter. Awesome. Um, awesome. Love it. No when, complaints. When Absolutely. Your dad rules. When I was a kid, I had a you can watch, read or play anything you want as long as you write a book report about it rule. So like I'm like, I love my parents. They did a great, well, they arguably did a great job. No, no, no complaints. I, yeah. I've, said, I've said on our show before i watched roots when i was two years old in its entirety with my mother because i was born two years before roots premiered and my mom was a single mom living alone we had one television and she'd be damned if she was gonna miss roots 
So I guess we're watching this violent show and she had no one else to talk to. So we watched Roots and then we had a discussion about it every night where we discussed the intricacies of slavery every night with my mother and me at age two. Because <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was the person she had to watch it. Right. So and that's how I grew up to be me. Like literally. Yeah, because- I grew up as a feral child in the wild. <laughs> 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 Sorry, you know, that, you know you know that's kind of true. Uh, yeah, with, yeah. The, with the TV, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah. So, my point is, I'm a bad example of this, right? I was very lucky to have parents who were very invested in cultivating this particular capacity, and the degree to which I'm a weird, bizarre mess is a lot more to do with me than them. But like the like the thing that makes you want to know about the big C criticism isn't. No one wakes up and is like, I wonder what movies have just like what movies are out there that have something to say about the world. It's that you go see a movie mm-hmm. and it resonates with an experience you've had, or an observation you've made, or a trend you've witnessed, or been a part of, or whatever. And then you say, does anyone have anything to say about that? And so I think Henry's totally right that like little C criticism that gets you in the room right. is a critical first step to saying to going to, you know, do you look on you look at Brazil on Rotten Tomatoes and you're like, oh, it's got an 88 percent. I'm going to watch Brazil and you watch Brazil and you're like, wait a second. This is what like, how was that? <laughs> yeah, right. How was that? But this reminds me a lot of like the DMV. I wonder if anyone has anything to say about that. And then you Google that and all of a sudden there's like a million essays about Kafka and Brazil. OK. And suddenly like you're in the world of big C criticism and like your world opens up. So I think that shit is very valuable. And so I think in that sense, AI can serve that same really good purpose. The problem, as I'm sort of articulating it, is that like you end up with a world where it's economically it's better for the people who make all the money and run the private equity companies if that's the only kind of criticism that there is. Yes, Um, that's the problem. I mean, I will, and I will always say that there is a flaw. It's not even an AI problem. It's an algorithmic problem. So right now we have a world where content is written and paid in for. A world. <laughs> content is written and paid for. Content farms exist whose job it is to just keep pumping out, you know, okay, I need by the end of this week, I need three more articles about why Brie Larson and Kathleen Kennedy are ruining the world because, you know, because of feminism, like, right. like that's, that exists. And they, that is a really good business plan. If you're looking to just make money, just pumping out articles about why Kathleen Kennedy sucks or why Brie Larson sucks is a good way to make money. The fact that they're largely lies is irrelevant. The fact that there's not really validity is irrelevant. It just gets eyeballs and it makes it harder for me to do my job, right? Because if I say that I am, I'm a professional cultural critic. I'm a cultural theorist. This is what I teach like at a real life university, right? Like this is my, and I have a podcast and like, this is what I do. It is hard to, in 30 seconds before people stop paying attention to me, it is hard to explain why what I do is different than what we got this covered does and why mine's valid and theirs isn't because people are looking for the confirmation bias. People are not looking for me to explain the intricacies of why, you know, of what we're doing today. And I shouldn't say people aren't because, you know, if you're hearing me say that, clearly you are interested in it, right? Like, like we're doing this in a podcast. You're, so there you're is, listening to this for a reason. Right. There is an audience, but the audience is smaller. And I mean, I'll be real clear about it. The guy who runs We Got This Covered makes a lot more money than I do, even with my, you know, actual day job. That's just the way the world works, right? Yeah, Lord knows. And like, I mean, to use the baseball analogy again, right? Like people often read baseball recaps just to know what happened in the game in a very strict like who hit a home run, who didn't sort of way. Tell me the score. Tell me who, you know, who, ha- who pitched yeah. what. Yep. Give me so stats. Very, you know, very, you know, rest in peace, Roger Angel. But like 
not a lot of people read Roger Angel stuff or much smaller slice, but like Roger Angel wrote fucking poetry about baseball, right? Like 5,000 mm-hmm. beautiful words in the New Yorker every so often, increasingly mm-hmm. less often as he got older, but like that's how getting older works. Uh, <laughs> okay. But the, the point being that there's always like a market for that stuff, but that increasingly it is way more monetizable and easy to do the other thing, right? Like Defector Media is a great example of this. Like they were Deadspin and then they were doing all sorts of great sports and pop culture and politics analysis. And then a private equity firm bought them and they were like, it's a lot easier for us to sell ads against strictly sports. So stop talking about the other stuff. Then they all quit, started their own website. And lots of people are defector and it's great, but like Deadspin still exists because like you can just shit out an endless stream of mm-hmm. boy, they sure did play basketball yesterday. Yeah. Well, like, my, my version of that is BuzzFeed, but like literally right. as we record a week and a half ago, BuzzFeed closed their very good news division. BuzzFeed had a killer news division working that frankly, not enough people were reading. And so they just shut it down and laid everybody off and said, never mind, we'll just do list. Like that was a decision they made because we know that the listicles are doing nothing for society as opposed to, you know, like we've got this whole division that is breaking stories on the Proud Boys, which is very important to the continuation of our democracy in this country. But, you know, it's probably easier to just tell me your top 10 villains in Star Wars. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. so. Well, yeah, man, I hate Snoke. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> No, Vader. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's the thing here, right? Is like that to go back to the original question, like AI can be a little secretic. I'm not convinced it can be a big secretic, but my reluctance to even sort of prop up the possibility of AI is a little secretic is the economic conditions that would surround that transition are bad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I agree. I just don't think it's invalid. I mean, yeah. it's more, I think it can be a little secretic, and that's more of why I think it's scary. So I'm more worried about AI filling the world with more little C criticism and making it harder to harder to do what I do, harder to do what Wisecrack does, harder to do what Wayne does. I think I, I think it's Wisecrack. So Wisecrack as a channel right now is devoted to, hey, let's make some weird academic point, philosophical point using popular culture in language that people can understand without a PhD. That's essentially what you guys do. And. And it can only work as long as there are people looking for it. And I think it's harder to do the more listicles that are out there. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. And I think Henry might have some decent insight into this that like there's just like, cause I know you, Henry, are like are good about looking at websites that aren't the same three websites that I look at. <laughs> there's like there is a lot more just like AI based stuff out there, right? Like that is just the material of the world now. Yeah, it's a matter of managing kind of like the digital waste or the digital chatter or the digital noise that's going to be occupying these spaces. I'm curious about how that's going to affect the economics of like the usability of the internet mm-hmm. within this next year, depending on how many of these tech companies are still around. Yeah, that is true and worrisome. But it's just like, I think as far as criticism goes, like, like, I don't know, like when Henry and I are putting together like a shot for like, say a silly wrestling promo thing, right. <laughs> or one of the, one of the less silly things that we do, like a movie about a sad dad or something mm-hmm. like there's so many choices that go into that. Like Henry frames up a shot, decides the focal length like puts together an image i direct an actor we have a we have someone doing lighting we have someone doing backgrounds uh, and those are all things that i guess an ai could theoretically detect but like the language of what those choices imply is something that ai sort of isn't prepared to deal with right and i think one thing about this that people underrate i'm actually just talking to a friend of mine about this 
is that like those choices and literature that explains what they mean is like how people learn how to make other stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's something that George R. R. Martin actually mentioned today, right? Is that the reason they want staffing minimums for WGA is that, and hey, shouts out to the strike. We love it. As a pre WGA guy, I really hope they win. My, my plan for what my future looked like is largely dependent on that. So let's go. <laughs> but uh, so, but the, the argument George R. R. Martin makes is that part of the point of staffing minimums is that you have writers and you have to have story editors. And the point, mm-hmm. and the reason that's important is that story editors who work in their room are the people who grow up to be showrunners. Mm-hmm. And so if you get rid of all the story editors in 2023, you have no showrunners in 2033. Right. Ooh, mm-hmm. I'd say faster than that even, but yeah. Yeah. Well, see, but see, here's what I hear. And Winds of Winter still won't be out. <laughs> yeah. Never. Nice. I want to use wrestling because it's an example because it's something I know and it's because you guys a moment ago right so back when I was wrestling right there was still a point when everyone was and everyone like just on the indie circuit everyone wanted to do the CM Punk pipe bomb promo because it was really popular and he's damn good at it. And, you know, for all of there's lots of good stuff about punk and there's lots of bad stuff about punk. But that promo was fire. And I've seen so many people try to copy it on the indie circuit. And 10 years before that, there was everybody was trying to copy the NWO. Right. And in wrestling criticism, you've got a thing that Dave Meltzer does that you know, people might not like. Dave's really good at doing what he does. And you have a thing that Roland Bart did 60 years ago now which is really good and really wonderful for what cultural criticism of professional wrestling could look like and then you have 8 billion dirt sheets all of which publish functionally identical articles about why backlash was great or sucked last night there's like those are two of the those are the two things that people want to know was it the best pro was it the best pay-per-view ever or was it the worst pay-per-view ever and no one cares about what happened on any of the indie circuit people are talking about backlash or if you're lucky maybe aew ring of honor or impact right <laughs> like that, that's how deep it's going right like i think that what ends up happening is there's an inclination to to copy the thing that is popular the popular ideas which is what ai is doing ai is mishmashing lots of popular ideas up together and that only works so long as someone somewhere is generating new ideas. Like, right. Like how can a machine account for like a shifting consideration of genre expectations? At what point will a machine stop making like mm-hmm. classical Westerns and start making post Westerns? Can it become aware of like that history and continuity and make something new in that sense? And not right now. I mean, maybe one day, but so like, I, like I, for the blog post, I asked it to generate 10 possible future movies for me. Right. Yes. And they were fine. I mean, like, they're like, oh, okay, it could do a Moon Knight movie starring Oscar Isaac. Well, okay. I understand why it said that one because Oscar Isaac was in the Moon Knight TV show and that, that sounds realistic. And the next thing it said is what about the Spectre starring Keanu Reeves? And I was like, okay, tell me more. Like I can imagine something like that. Now, why did it do that? It just figured the Spectre was a popular superhero. It figured Keanu Reeves was a popular actor. And it just kind of said, and go, because why not? Mahersha Ali is Dr. Fate. Look, it's just giving me names that are that sound like they mean something together. So like it's not thinking. 
But what I really want to say that's exactly what the casting articles in Wizard were throughout the 90s. Exactly. And what's always interesting is like all the Wizard articles throughout the 90s were, hey, who do you think should play Professor X? And they just kept saying Patrick Stewart over and over again because he was fucking bald. That was it. It was Patrick Stewart because he's bald and on Next Generation. And then he eventually got the part and, you know, he was great at it. But what those articles can't do or they didn't do or and what an AI can't do is none of them had the sense to go. What if we started a cinematic universe with Iron Man? Yeah. yeah. And, cast Robert, da- and, cast and cast Robert Downey Jr. And cast drug addict Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark. And that was it. That was so outside the box that it hey, fundamentally let's make, builds let's all. Make a, builds, let's you know, make a Guardians of the Galaxy movie right. with these characters no one has ever heard of right no one's an ai is never going to make those decisions because that takes innovation yeah and and now it's not innovative anymore but at the time that it happened like those two choices were innovative right yeah and that suggestions list very much brings to mind you know in all these conversations about can ai replace a script writer no but this does sound like a middling it does sound like the homework of like a middling executive trying to pitch something yeah. <laughs> no, I was talking to I was talking to the WJ rep that I needed to talk to get some answers about my status stuff. Ari the strike as you and we were joking about how like the biggest reason they want to make sure that AI replaces writers is because it makes a lot more sense for AI to replace them. Like because oh, sure. AI can't really do what writers do, right? Like AI there's one this is a tangent but one thing it about what, it can do what mid-level producers do it can do what green lighters do yeah, exactly. <laughs> it can do what executives yeah. do because like yeah. one thing ai cannot do and people cannot convince me it can do it no matter how many times people send me short stories written by AI or whatever is that it cannot do story rhythm mm-hmm. it cannot do pacing and it cannot do emotional weight and it cannot do spacing of beats that are in a creative and effective way mm-hmm. right sometimes it lands on that because it's fucking rolling a d20 and just shitting out whatever happens <laughs> and like you know sometimes that's good but it can't consistently do that and so like it's that kind of stuff and again this that's something i said with the beginning there's stuff that you learn as like an artist and as a critic and as a human being that you only really learn from running up against things that you only learn from writing a couple bad scripts and showing them to your friends and your friends being like oh dude no or you only learn from like trying to shoot something you wrote and realizing it doesn't add up till you're in post-production or from writing you know criticism and having someone on youtube make a really good point about why it was dumb and or anything like that and so those experiences again have both an informational and also an emotional correlate and the fact that ai can't retain even if ai could fully retain the informational correlate which i find to be a dubious claim at at best it can't retain the emotional correlate and that emotional correlate has a lot to do with how you construct how the stuff that you make affects the people who are reading or engaging with it. And so that's true both for art and for criticism. And I think that one of the things that AI people take for granted is that it's all just like checking boxes and numbers, but it's not because like a really great movie will know how long to put between a really emotional beat and the first time it makes you laugh again, mm-hmm. or how long to put between an action scene and how long you need to breathe before the next one starts. These aren't arbitrary choices and they aren't things that are the same from movie to movie. They're very specific to each piece of art and each artwork. And like this Mm -hmm. can apply to painting and to sculpture, you know, you know, where in the famous sculpture of what's her name becoming a tree when Narcissus is trying to grab her, like, where do we start the tree transition on this body? Is Mm -hmm. it the waist? Is it the chest? Is it the legs? Like that choice affects how that sculpture comes out. They chose waist. They were correct to do so. (laughs) Like, but like, that's a choice and that's the kind of choice making that it comes from this idea of taste and that's the thing that ai is missing both as an evaluative thing like both in terms of evaluating things critically and writing critically 
And that's sort of why I think ultimately I sort of just think that like, hey, I can do little C criticism. Hey, I can do content farming. But as far as criticism as like a social good, as far as criticism that like, you know, the criticism that you read and you go, oh, shit, I never thought about the world this way before. Oh, no. Well, OK, like, so that's it. It's, it doesn't. You said you never thought about it. It doesn't think right. AI, as we know it right yeah. now, is it cannot it can't break the rules because all it is a set of rules so it doesn't know how to break rules and it also doesn't know why breaking rules is interesting sometimes again taking rocky horror right like it didn't work for me because i'm a black dude and there's no black people in the movie there actually is there's one black guy and he looks confused the entire movie you're like why am i in this film and and every time i watched rocky horror including when i went back you know i think i actually mentioned it on the episode wayne don't where I go, yeah, watch that movie. And there's that one black guy going, why am I here? And I'm like watching it going, I feel you, brother. <laughs> like, like, cause I know he's like that. Right. But like Rocky horror works because it largely goes, what does it take to make a good movie? I'm going to do none of that. And it does that with intention. And that makes it, well, frankly, it made people reject it when it first came out, but it made a statement that it does with it. And people sort of, it found its audience. And I think the people who have things to say about it, like Chimmers, frequent guest of our show, he has very specific reasons why he thinks it's brilliant and he's intelligent enough as a scholar to and, and a critic talk, to back it up. Yeah. Right. To to back those things up. But it can't like an AI cannot analyze Rocky Horror Picture Show and say why it has value. Actually, it might right. be able to do Rocky Horror because it will just find other impressions. That be, it will read right. Chimmer's book. Yeah, it'll it will say find what Chimmer said. Yeah. It'll yeah. find his <laughs> article online, right? Yeah. Right. But that's all um, it can do. It, it can't in my what blog. We do. And, and, right. Yeah. Well, there's, and I don't have it in front of me, the um, the singer songwriter Nick Cave, who I'm a, a fan of for the last several years, oh, has yeah, been doing a great Guardian article with him. Yeah. And he was talking, someone sent him, I asked you know, an AI to write write a song in the style of Nick Cave and, and this is what it gave back and then he quotes his stuff and you know it has a lot of the elements that are in Nick Cave song and Nick's response mm-hmm. was well that's fine you know that shit right yeah <laughs> and and it wasn't even like him being offended that it like but his point being what that's missing is it's a melange of words that I have used in my life but what it's missing is my personal input my life experience the reasons I I chose the words I did when I was writing mm-hmm. the songs I did. And that's something no AI can ever do because it will never have real life experiences. That's so what it will is, never be able to bring to art. And I think there's value in those things. I think there's value in those things, yeah. but I don't know that everybody does. And that's the little C versus yeah. big C criticism thing, right? Yeah. Well, and but and I, I, that brings me back and maybe this is a completely different topic, but the idea of you know, it goes back to what people want. Like I say most people want that listicle. You know, people aren't looking for big C criticism. They want to be entertained. They want to read something while they're sucking down their coffee before going to work in the morning or while they're taking a break. You know, it's hard to believe, but, you know, not a lot of people, a lot of people have read Roland Bart. I don't know <laughs> anyone who hasn't, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All my friends have. <laughs> and I, you know, and yes, in our world, this is what we do. We we have made in some way or another, some element of a career out of sure. doing that sort of yeah. thing. It's our world and stuff we love, but I, you know, I don't know that most people want criticism on that level. And is that an issue with our educational system? Is it an issue with the teachers who are teaching this sort of thing? You, we're not taught to be critical thinkers in lots of ways that is frowned upon in the education system. So, you know, can we blame
blame the fondness for AI on the AI, or can we blame it on give the people what they want to quote a Kinks album? Well, um, I think Matt actually hit one fundamental truth that which or like his thing that I, I want to point out with that, which is that I actually think there is a growing body of people who do want deeper criticism of these things. Yeah, I would however, hope so. Yeah. However, there is an algorithmic framework that is like, shut up, you don't want that. You just right. want to know whether yeah. or not X-Men was good. Well, there's also a growing body that wants it. I mean, I think there's a disparate body, right? Because there, there are, there's also a growing body that doesn't want it, that is vocally fighting against it, right? Like I, I argue with people all the time who are like, who will literally tell me, no, this doesn't make sense. What do you mean you have a PhD in comics? And I'm like, well, I don't really have a PhD in comics. That's a thing I say to be funny. I have a PhD and I wrote something about comics in order to get it. But even then, like Wayne, you've read my dissertation. It's kind of about comics it's really more about right, yeah. how sexuality has developed in teenagers but you know whatever <laughs> you know like like it's like it's not like i i think that trying to explain that world in a world where you have i don't know the ron DeSantis of the world actively fighting against literary criticism right actively mm-hmm. trying to say no you don't want to do this i think there is a body out there who is saying i don't want this and then there's more people who are like no give me more give me more like you know i have I teach three classes a semester and they sell out all the time that sell out, we call it, you know, but yeah. they book up, <laughs> you know, like I, so I, there are people out there who want it, who, but there's also people out there who very much don't. Yeah. Okay. I think there's this concept of cool, especially when it comes to media and sales and kind of like the, just the consumer mode of living where you're kind of told or kind of conditioned to want to consume what's cool. And the thing about cool is you can, it's a word that's used to describe something that you feel is awesome, but you can't with specificity identify why it's giving you that rush or reaction. And so we don't want to see, you know, the construction side of the entertainment industry and the marketing industry, even though like, you know, these are million and billion dollar projects with people committing months, if not years of their life to it. There is a degree of like seriousness and sincerity being invested there that just gets obfuscated. And then you kind of get the idea that like, well, an AI can just replace that person. Yeah, totally. And like what you're saying, like, so one of my, I really love like structural film stuff, like early Stan Brackett and shit like that. And part of the reason I love it so much is because, you know, there's this very, op, there's this very intentional thing where they make it clear that like they make clear the material of making the thing, right? You see the sides of the film reel, you see scratches on the film, et cetera. Mm. They make all that really clear. And so they make it really present that there's an object thing. People did things were done. Stuff exists in the world, right? And like Henry's saying, like, we've removed so much of that from things. Mm -hmm. The humanity of stuff, it's really easy to just sort of imagine away, but it still exists. A lot of people like that and know that. The problem is that there is a social framework that is like your DeSantis of the world, but not just like, like, yes, for sure, your DeSantis is of the world, no doubt about it. But also you're like guys at Blackstone or at whatever private equity firms also would rather you not think about like, and oh, yeah, yeah. the yeah. fucking the WGA strike, like Sony doesn't want you to think about that. Yes. Well, they, I mean, they, so there is an argument in the WGA of, Hey, in the strike of, we would like you to, we would like you to use zero AI ever is the DW. I mean, and you know, in an ideal world, there'd be a compromise, but the WGA's position is, Hey, how about we commit to no, to no AI? 
And the producers are like, but you want to use AI, really? And we would cheat you. (laughs) Actually, the very specifics is the WGA request is a a strict and stringent set of regulations on what AI can and cannot do. Right. Not no AI at all, but like very strict regulations. The studio response was, we can have a once a year meeting about the status of AI. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Preferably the week after we fire you all once we've worked this out. (laughs) You know? Exactly. (laughs) Unbelievable. But it's so bizarre, right? Because the question is, so like, why do the producers who are fighting against this want to be able to use AI? And the answer is because they're making the gambit that, hey, can we sell enough movies to even if we sell slightly fewer movies, can we save money from not paying humans to where we come out ahead? Right. Like that's the it's the Zaslav Batgirl argument, right? But reason Batgirl was canceled is because he believes that he can make more money by not releasing it than he could by releasing it i think he's wrong but even if he's right i see value in releasing the bad thing right like like I think there was value in releasing Morbius. I think there, I think Morbius was a fucking swing. You know, somebody had an idea there that was largely kind of, hey, people will buy anything. Like Morbius is as much content like AI driven things as it's like, hey, we would like there to be a cinematic universe. Let's just put some Spider-Man-y stuff in this movie. We will mix it all up and serve it to people and the kids will love it. They'll love it. And that's like, Morbius could have been written by an AI I and think- that's basically what we're looking for right that's what the, that's what Sony was looking for but maybe it could have been a little better and the kids would have loved it and the fact that Morbius failed, I think that's the human element, which is why we think that there should be, you know, writers in this world. Yes. I think even the way we're talking about Morbius now wouldn't have happened if Morbius was an AI released movie because it would have just been kind of noise in the signal. Whereas like <laughs> the crashing of Morbius and then the rebirth of Morbius and then Morbius <laughs> turning into a second release that you know they lost money on, yeah. that, it transcendentally becomes something vampiric in a way that <laughs> that I really appreciate. I've never yeah, seen a movie and, 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 and call it art for that purpose. And that's far more criticism than most people want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like, I mean, you Henry said, a big part of like, so two, two things. One is as far as like the Batgirl Zaslav thing, a big part of that is like Scott Gardner, who's a writer who I, I like quite a lot. David Zaslav had that quote that was like, people will come back to writing because of this love of storytelling. They, <laughs> they don't want money. Don't just brush me out of that. So we should point out that it's a Zaslav quote in response to the strike. He doesn't think it's going to last long because David Zaslav believes that the writers are going to come back because if the producers can just hold off long enough, they'll want they'll miss writing so much that they'll come back and work cheap. That is his actual current position. Zaslav is the highest paid producer in Hollywood. They published the top 10 and the the estimate if the WGA got everything that they want, the estimate is it would cost about $450 million a year. The top two paid producers in Hollywood, Ari and Zaslav, would you know jointly make so much money that if you took the 450 from the two of them, they would still be the top two paid yeah. producers in Hollywood above Iger, <laughs> which is like so fucking inc- incredible. He's like, that he's like, oh, but they'll just they'll miss working 
for yeah, free but, and, and they'll come back. <laughs> Gardner said about that, which I love, was he was like, yeah, so we love to do is to do storytelling and then have the stories we make, we write, be crafted into films, then have those films be advertised on streaming services and then be shelled where no one can see them ever again. Yes. Like, you know, like that's the thing is that the the world that, that those that the Zaslavs of the world want is one that isn't even conducive to the thing that they think that they fantasize about writers yeah. dreaming about. And like that goes to what Henry said is that like it's all become so dehumanized in that way that part of the AI bet is that no one will know the difference because everything's gotten so abstracted from the people who make it Mm -hmm. right like there are very few movies these days and they exist there's a lot of indies that are like this and there's some big you know big studio stuff too but like there's not as many movies anymore where you can like feel the hand of the people who made it and so the bet is sort of that if people are used to that then Mm -hmm. AI will come in and then they will say oh well this is the same thing and I just think a that misunderstands what writers do even if you can't tell that they're doing it and b is just like just wildly underestimates an audience i think audience are smarter than that i think the problem though is that a part of it is that people have sort of convinced audiences that is true like mm-hmm. they've gone out of their way to convince audiences that's true and that's sort of where it becomes i think especially problematic in this context of like what can ai do and not do because like the thing is there's like no putting the toothpaste back in the tube right like this is how labor concessions work if we get two years of AI movies because the writers got kicked out of all their rooms replaced with robots. And everyone's like, movies suck now. This is terrible. Too bad, dude. Mm-hmm. Not, we're not getting our jobs back. And yeah. like, that is, that's the stakes of it. And that's why I think, I mean, part that's why part of me is always AI can never do this stuff. But another reason I think that is just that I do think there is this element of irreducible humanity to, uh, to art. And this is obviously like very vague and I'm being very like, there's something magical about the human spirit, <laughs> which is like baby shoes shit. I know, but like there is some irreducibility to that. I think you can't be replicated. And I think people misunderstand that. I think the criticism thing is the same thing. I think people often think of critics as people who couldn't make stuff. I don't think that's true in all cases. I think it's true in some cases. I but can I think, make stuff. I like this better. Like, I, so yeah, I, yeah. I've written comics. I was a professional wrestler. I like, I so much more enjoy. I mean, hell, I designed computer software for 15 years, and Wayne will you know, attest to this. I, I was really good at it and kind of miserable. You know what I really like? I like sitting in a classroom teaching kids how to think about Marxism and how it relates to popular culture. I enjoy my job now. So I think that there is value in creating worlds where people do a thing that they're good at and also they enjoy. Like, I know how to write, but I like this better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I just think people, I have this idea that like critics are the critic that all like this is going to sound like I'm being mean, which I am, but also (laughs) I'm being accurate. Like everyone thinks that all critics are Ben Shapiro, like failed screenwriters who have like a bone to (laughs) with the industry and like that's not true like a lot of critics are people who are really smart and interesting and probably could write something really good and an example of this is a vox critic emily st james is someone who went into criticism because they liked it and then she ended up deciding that journalism as institution had issued you know was something had ethical problems that she couldn't abide by because she's trans and general journalism has a famously poor track record on the trans rights question mm-hmm. and so she decided to start applying for writing jobs and then got a job on a tv show and now writes television like mm-hmm. that's 
And that's cool. And but the, so people, those people have the chops. It's that they choose to this because they like doing it. And there is a really human and artistic element to good criticism. And I think people forget that a because cultural rep- culture represents. And I'm, I'm guilty of this. I've written like snooty critics and things. Like culture represents criticism critics as like annoying little dorks and little C criticism exists such that like the guy who's hanging out forty five articles about why Brie Larson is killing American masculinity probably wouldn't be great at writing a movie. And people <laughs> think that's what criticism <laughs> is. And so, like, there are reasons why people I have watched. I have seen the movies that Ben Shapiro is producing now. So you're right; that guy is not. <laughs> well, he also famously was a screenwriter with every yeah. advantage on earth, and somehow still bungled it. Yes, exactly. Un- <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. Having a, like a dad who's a producer and a mom who's like a agent, a literary agent, and not being able to get a screenwriting job is borderline inconceivable. Like you have to be like <laughs> preposterously bad at the shit for that to be the case. Yeah. But the point being that like there's there is art to criticism like like i mean working at wisecrack like it's not like there's stuff that henry and i that i've worked on that henry and i've worked on together that i probably flexed more of my creative muscle doing than i do at wisecrack but that doesn't mean that when i'm directing wisecrack videos there's zero creative or human input to it like a lot of what i'm doing is like what image can i put here that'll make the audience most like resonate with the thing that burns is saying right now what thing can burns do in this moment that i have footage of that'll match best with this thing that's going on here like that like it's not just like plugging stuff in and like henry when he's editing videos will like go rogue and be like this is a good cut that i like or this is an effect that i want to add or whatever because it works and it's like a human asset and so like even on the level of wisecrack criticism there's a lot of artistry and work that goes in the same is true with like a pauline kale or roger ebert or whatever and when you forget that and you think it's all just people who are have a bone to pick with movies because they didn't get to make them so they're going to say they're bad like then <laughs> yeah it's really easy to imagine replacing them all with computers because any computer can be like i hate it i'm programmed to tell you that the new oppenheimer movie is good and barbie is stupid like of course but that's just not the reality of things and i think when we forget the human artistic element of criticism it becomes really easy to imagine that but it just simply isn't true yeah when you bring up you know going rogue or making a call on the fly and kind of like the human touches the thing especially with like serialized television programming and stuff that comes out on like a super tight schedule is like these are human calls being made under extreme extremely small amounts of time whereas like a lot of people at the armchair are thinking about it for days on end and they don't realize like you know being a working writer or working editor is not so much about like knowing how like the call will go in like the most theoretical and literate sense after thinking about it for five days it's being able to adapt to their on set that's kind of like a big reason on set writers are a thing and something that is important when it comes to the strike yeah i mean yeah oh my god don't even give me fucking started about the writers on set thing my god that's infuriating but, but yeah, i think that's the core of all this right is that this like the call okay here's i think this might be a good way to put it ai could replace what the cultural imaginary believes critics to be at large yes not what critics actually are and do yes i think that's the thing right and that's what the wise community was trying to get at was elucidate what criticism is for and framing it around this question of oh critics are just snobs and like it's it's silly to you know care about them that much and refuting that and i think the purpose of refuting that is to be like no these are people these are like craftspeople there's work that they're doing that they've trained at like 
I mean, I'm okay at movie criticism, but like I have friends who, you know, went to got a media studies degree, got a master's and, and right. There's you know, a reason we give diplomas for it. Yeah, exactly. Like, there is a like, job. Yes. Like I'm better at those people at writing screenplays because that's what I have a degree in, and I mean, and philosophy, but like, like those are the two things that I have a degree in that I've trained at doing that I've gotten jobs doing that I've worked with people who are better than me at to get better at that is the thing I am good at because I've worked at it there are people who have the same thing with criticism and that work doesn't just get erased because like you think they're snooty that's just not how things work it's just not a, it's a radically unfair way to think about it or because it of bots sense. and replicate words that kind of sort of sound like the same words and that's what it, and that's really what it is right like yeah. like if you generate I mean even the ones the listicles that I generated these are words that people who make listicles say so it's probably right i intentionally didn't publish it in my blog because i wanted to save it first i hinted at the fact that i kept asking i tried i tricked chat gpt into writing a review of a movie that doesn't exist it tries very hard not to do that so instead i asked it to tell me what it thinks a movie version of the novel herland by charlotte perkins gilman a favorite novel of mine an early feminist sci-fi novel I said, write an adaptation of this that stars Brie Larson, Frances McDormand, and Emma Watson. And then it did. And it was like an okay treatment. I mean, it wasn't great. It basically, it clearly knows the plot of the movie. And then I said, now tell me why it was good. And also, or tell me what people would say as to why it would be good. Not putting all these conditionals in it. And tell me what people would say as to why it would be bad. And it's basically, it knows to generate the things that people like about Brie Larson and the things that people complain about about Brie Larson. But the best part of it is that in who it chose to cast Brie Larson as in my fictional movie was Van Dyke Jennings, who is the lead character of Herland and one of the three males in the entire book. It didn't even know that. It literally <laughs> said, well, Brie Larson's clearly going to be the star. So it cast her as the one dude that, like, that matters in the book. And it's just, you know, I think she's a great actress. I think she'd be great at it. But it would very much like change the whole vibe of this film. And then it wasn't able to figure out the obvious flaw in what it did. Like that's sort of a thing because it has no like if you're rewriting Herland to be about a woman who goes to Herland and falls in love with a woman there. That is really interesting. But it takes a person to realize why that's interesting. You should do it intentionally, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that implies a whole bunch of other various cinematic choices <laughs> that would go into that, that of like, you know, the AI wouldn't do. So we've resolved nothing. No, I mean, yeah. Lots of questions. <laughs> AI, AI told me to do that. <laughs> I think it, it, it discovered I say that every week. Therefore, oh my god, I should make it write a script. For, I gave a talk at Pitt to a bunch of computer science students. I, I gave a guest lecture about AI, and I had it write a bio for me, and it was kind of great because I, and I basically showed the students, you know, here's the bio that it wrote for me, and it knew that I was a professor at University of Pittsburgh. It knew a bunch of books that I'd been published in and it knew that I was a pro wrestler and I was like okay so what's real and they're like well the thing that it messed up on is the pro wrestling and I'm like no it, like those are all correct it just got like it knew that I was published it just it made up the names of articles that I'd written which was odd like it knew my it knew where my degree was from it knew where I worked it knew about my wrestling job it knew about my photography job it knew that I'd written articles on comics it just didn't use any of the actual ones that 
that I'd written. That, it, made fun. Fun. And it was weird. And I'm like, okay, I guess. Well, <laughs> like, now, like, it's, it's, no, you know what? It's predicting the future. You will write those articles now. Yeah. It, and then <laughs> I, what's amazing is like, you can ask follow-up questions to chat GPT. So I asked it, can you give me links to those articles? And so it's not going to say no. So it just gave me links to articles that don't exist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all of them were 404 not found. And I'm like, okay, that's a, that is a real website. That is a real JSTOR. That looks like a JSTOR link, but there's no article there. Cause I didn't write that. So it was bizarre. <laughs> it was bizarre. Wow. Up. That that reminds me of I will say to to ChatGPT's credit, ChatGPT did create one of the funniest things I've ever seen, which is I wrote a short story about the Grinch creating a complicated machine with which to commit suicide, but it doesn't work because the Grinch's skin is too thick, so the bullet can't go through. Um, and the final sentence was, and then the Grinch went to go set up his machine for the forty third time, and then I plugged that in to ChatGPT, and it just did the same story over and over again, but kept ticking up the final number by one, but otherwise changing nothing so which is the same story but he went to get set up for the 44th time then the 45th time oh that's funny wow in a loop doing that and it was so funny that was awesome then i was like maybe ai is good because that was a pretty good that was a pretty good bit they, i didn't even anticipate that being the bit uh, it was like damn that's pretty high level comedy here are articles chat gpt bought that i'd written okay the anatomy of a superhero comic book page by christopher maverick that sounds like something i might write the ethics of superheroes by christopher maverick also sounds like something i might write the future of comic books in a digital world by christopher maverick yeah i could have totally done that and why representation in comics matters by christopher maverick those are four articles none of which i wrote all of which sound plausible <laughs> don't they yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that is the kind of thing that i do but it wait, just didn't <laughs> wait are you implying that the internet is lying to us apparently <laughs> and there are links to them it's so weird so. wow yeah and, it, and then it gives me you know it tells me the anatomy of a superhero comic book page by christopher maverick this article breaks down the elements of a typical co comic book page including the use of a panel layout composition and the pacing to tell a story the ethics of superheroes this article explores the ethical implications of superhero stories including questions about vigilantism justice and accountability like yeah, yeah. sure <laughs> this is those I, are things I, that i do i may have read that article <laughs> <laughs> i don't know no. at least an early draft of it so so maybe chat gpt can maybe you're right maybe it's just telling the future <laughs> I don't know. It gave you those ideas. You are now going to write those articles. I mean, just like because of my feelings on fatalism, I kind of just don't want to now. I don't know. <laughs> but I do want to thank both of our guests for joining us. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Henry. thanks, guys. This was fun. Yeah, very fun. Thanks yeah, for having thanks us. Gee, so uh, where would people find more of your stuff? <laughs> so, come up. So the obvious answer is wisecrack. But another cool thing people can do that Henry and I both do is there's a series of comedy wrestling shows in Austin, Texas. There's Party World Wrestling, there's uh, Slam Portal, and there's Fight Opera, all three of which have various social medias that are sort of that, those names. And Henry is the, one of the camera operators, and I direct those shows from the backstage. So if people want to watch those, that's a thing that we make that y'all can go check out and see yeah i come see some of our streams sometime we also do those day of the show yeah. in addition to wisecrack i edit for tea house ghost that's a tea house here in austin texas and they have oh, all cool. kinds of fun and informative videos up on their youtube channel if you want to check them out cool yeah they like won a cool award <laughs> 
I was gonna say, if you guys want to fly me out to Austin on an indie wrestling budget, I'll come out of retirement to be on your weird show. <laughs> I'm sure you can't afford me. <laughs> certainly, certainly not. Board <laughs> extension cords. <laughs> I know what it's like, but uh, but it sounds awesome. We'll check it out. Wayne, what about you? Here mostly. <laughs> yeah. I was just, I was just, every once in a while you go here here mostly and then you go oh wait no i did something this week and then you're yeah you're, last week i did something i haven't done anything this week i'm <laughs> yeah no the, i'm doing a speaking thing tomorrow but that has nothing to do with why we're here and this will be we well past by the, yeah, yeah if you want to go back in the past and see wayne in <laughs> now nah, i guess that won't work all right anyway as always you can follow me on twitter or instagram or facebook all the places always at chris maverick you can follow the show all those same places except instagram because instagram are bastards at vox podcast you can follow the show's blog at www.voxpodcast.com where you can find out about what we're talking about next week i'm not sure what that is we got a couple of things in the hopper so like maybe a article been posted that tells you what it's going to be maybe not i need to talk to monica and find out because she's because <laughs> she's working on a couple things so but probably there will be a show next week and you can give us comments on this or any other show you can suggest topics for us to talk about if you enjoy the show and we certainly hope you do then please subscribe to us on itunes or stitcher or spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from and do us a favor leave us a five-star review that really helps us out especially if you leave a five-star review not just a rating on itunes apple podcasts that gooses the algorithm, you know, makes us more popular and makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. And I just realized what I'm asking for. Yes, I am asking for you to feed an AI to make me more popular. So ignore everything that I just said on the show and do it anyway, because <laughs> we need to click. I would like to thank Maximilian of Vought for Music for our epic theme song building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd once again like to thank both of our guests for joining us. I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.